Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 14, where the Holy Scriptures read, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountains then to pray by himself. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out then, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we come before you today excited to look at your word, to see who you are in a more clear way. Father, we ask that through the preaching of your word today, you would build up your saints for the work of the ministry, that we would see the ways where we doubt, that we would see the ways in our life where we're getting our eyes off of Christ and fixed on to the things of this world. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us now through the power of your spirit, that we would be able to Keep our eyes on Christ as we do the walk of faith. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to severe weather, the results can be quite severe. For instance, every year the United States sees around 800 tornadoes, which results in the death of around 80 people a year and over 1,500 injuries. And when it comes to other kind of storms, it doesn't get much better. For instance, in 2020, over 82 people lost their lives to rip currents alone. 52 from extreme heat, 45 from fire, 39 from flash flooding, 36 from thunderstorm wind, 24 from hurricanes, 23 from avalanches, and 19 from high wind. And yet, when it comes to severe weather, so many people lose their lives. Why? Because a lack of safe shelter. When it comes to unsafe shelter, there's a whole lot... I'm hearing a little bit of a ringing. If somebody could turn it down just a little bit, sorry. When it comes to unsafe shelter, there are a whole lot of really bad options. So what kind of options are we talking about? Well, for instance, and I'm probably talking to the men here, but your backyard is not a safe shelter. I know a lot of us like to go out and look at the storms as they come, but it's not very safe. Neither is under your bed, nor are you safe inside of your car. They're not safe places. Don't think they are. And why not? Because they can't handle the severity of the storm. Storms are too fast. They're too enormous. They're too powerful. For example, in the early 1900s, when a Category 4 hurricane with winds up to 140 miles per hour slammed into the Gulf Coast, it created a 160-foot storm surge that killed nearly 12,000 residents. And why? 
because the people lacked a safe shelter. In 2013, Oklahoma experienced a tornado that was, get this, 2.6 miles wide. When I first read that, I thought that's how far it traveled, but no, this was 2.6 miles wide. It was enormous. Does that sound like a storm you can outrun? No, not at all. Especially when it has wind speeds of up to 302 miles per hour, and this storm lasted over 40 minutes. And this is interesting. After touching down on a Friday afternoon at 6 o'clock p.m., which was right in the middle of rush hour, uh, the El Reno tornado, which we're talking about here, ripped through the countryside, uh, killing eight, four of whom were professional storm chasers, and injuring more than 151 people. And if the storm had stayed on its projected path of hitting the freeway right during that time, countless lives would have been lost, 500 or more. Why? Because the people lacked safe shelter. When it comes to storms, there's no question about it. They are absolutely terrifying. And this is because storms reveal our helpless condition in a way that we cannot deny. How? They show our frailty. They show our weakness, our helplessness. And so because of our frail condition, unless we find safe shelter, a shelter that is greater than the storm, we're toast. We will be lost. Which brings us to our text this morning. In Matthew chapter 14, we find a safe shelter that is just that. For the safe shelter that we find here is not only greater than the storm, the safe shelter we find here is actually the Lord of the storm. Why is he the Lord of the storm? Because not only can he silence the storm with the power of his voice, not only can he stroll upon the storm as if he's taking a walk in the park, but he's the Lord of all creation. He spoke our world into existence and he, into existence and he upholds it by the power of his might. And consequently, as the Lord of the storm, he alone is able to protect us as a safe shelter from the storm. Who is this Lord of the storm? He's Jesus Christ, the, the creator of our world. He's the Lord of all creation who came into our world to become our safe shelter, to shield us from the only true storm that could ever truly destroy us. And as we'll get to shortly here, what storm is that? It's the storm of God's wrath. So then, if we are going to survive that very, very dangerous storm, that means that we have to find shelter in the only safe shelter that can shield us from that storm, which is Jesus Christ. So how do we make Christ our safe shelter? We do this in three ways. By trusting his plan, his presence, and then finally in his power. Let's look at this first one. I'm going to read the verses uh, 22 through 24. So if you have your Bibles... Turn to Matthew chapter 14. We don't usually put the text up here that we're in this morning on the screen. So turn your Bibles to Matthew 14. We're going to read verses 22 through 24 again. Verse 22, it reads, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came... He was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now last Sunday we looked at the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 families uh, where we saw Jesus' compassion for sinners. We saw his commission for his servants, and then finally we saw the contentment that only Christ can provide us. And this week's miracle, as we said a little bit ago, it's kind of a part two of that miracle. How so? 
Why is it a part two? Well, because it further establishes exactly who Jesus is and what he came to do. And what was it? It wasn't just to feed our bellies with food of this world. No, it was to give us, as John tells us, the bread of eternal life, the bread from heaven. And the miracle here of Jesus walking on the water helps further establish that truth. Now, why did Jesus need to do a part two of last week's miracle of feeding the 5,000? Why is this necessary? Why wasn't the feeding of the 5,000 enough? Well, in John's account, because we find the account of the feeding of the 5,000 in all four Gospels, he tells us it's because of how the crowds responded to Jesus. John tells us that they were about to come and do what after Jesus fed them? I mean, he didn't just feed them a little bit. He fed them until they were stuffed and there was leftover baskets for all the disciples. He fed them until they were full. And in response to this, what were they going to do? They wanted to make him king. They were about to grab him and force him to be their king. And was this something that Jesus was on board with? No. Which is why John's account tells us that Jesus withdrew from the crowd to avoid their king-making plans. And so combining this with Matthew and Mark's accounts, we read that Jesus sent his disciples away by boat before he went on then to dismiss the crowds. Why? Well, for one, his disciples had a storm to catch. And for two, evidently, Jesus didn't want them there for some reason when he was turning down the crowd's king-making plot. Why didn't he want them there? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But we have a good idea of what it could be. It could be because Jesus didn't want the disciples influenced or affected by the crowd's desire to make them their king-making, disease-healing king. Now remember, what did the Jewish people want out of a messianic king? They wanted somebody who would get Rome's boot off their neck. They wanted a king who would come and conquer the nations victoriously, who would destroy all unrighteousness, would reestablish the Davidic throne and rule over all the nations of the earth. But was that Jesus' plan? Yes and no, right? It depends. Yes, but no. At least not in the way that they wanted him to. See, Jesus is absolutely going to do that. He's going to come back, hopefully very, very soon here, to conquer, rule, and reign over the nations. But that was only going to happen once his life-saving mission was completed, which involved his death upon a cross. His mission then was to come and die. It was a mission his disciples, nor the crowds, could get wrap their heads around. They couldn't fathom it. And sometimes when Jesus mentioned it, they were outright hostile against it, just as Peter was in Matthew chapter 16. And what happened there? What did Peter say? Get behind me, Satan. And why? Because what Peter was suggesting was actually the same thing the crowd was suggesting, which was that Jesus could have the kingdom of this world while sidestepping the cross. It's the same exact offer that Satan tempted Jesus with back in Matthew chapter 4. He took him up on the mountainside. He said, look at all the kingdoms of the world. You can have them if what? If you bow. If you bow before me and worship me, you can have them. You can skip the cross. They're yours. But that was a lie. Why? Because the storm of God's wrath is coming for the nations of this world, for all of this world's kingdoms. And once that hits, there's going to be nothing to rule and reign over it. There's going to be nothing to rule and reign over. Why? It's all going to be wiped out. 
And so the cross was absolutely necessary to make a safe shelter for all the nations of the world, not just Israel, to protect them from the storm of God's coming wrath. Now, before we jump into this next miracle here, we need to talk about a few things kind of about miracles. We need to understand the difference between a miracle and a miraculous sign. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the fact that Jesus' miracles were never merely for the point of just showing God's raw power. That's not why he did them, right? They were always used as a signpost to teach or to reveal something about God's character or the deficiencies in our own character. They were always for a great purpose. Think about it. Last week when Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000 families, why didn't Jesus say, boom, whammo, bread drops from heaven, it's all buttered and hot right into their laps? Because he was teaching them something. He was showing them with a vivid picture what their role was to be in the future in his absence. So we have to look at these miracles and understand they're not just arbitrary. He's not just like, oh, I think I'll walk on the water today. Why not? That'll show my power. No, he's teaching stuff through these miracles. They always teach us about God's character and our own. And this is an important truth to know if we are going to properly understand Jesus' miracles. Now, another thing, the temptation with these miracles, at the same time, not only, or for one, we're tempted to under-spiritualize them, but at the same time, we're tempted to over-spiritualize them in a way that we shouldn't. Okay? We can't do either. Both of, those are, both of those ditches are bad. Let's avoid them. For example, what am I talking about? Well, with Peter walking on the water, some people will take that to mean that if we put our faith in Christ, then we can walk on water and, and conquer everything. We can pass our test. We'll, we'll get the job promotion, right? We'll, we'll hit that home run. Is that what it's talking about? No, that's ridiculous. That's not the point at all. It's the same sort of thing that people do with that passage in Philippians, which talks about being able to do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. And there, Peter's not talking about winning the big game or passing your test. He's talking about facing all of the world's persecution that can be thrown at us. We can, do, we can go through all things through Christ who strengthens us is a better way to understand that. What kind of things? Well, in Romans chapter 8, Paul describes those kind of things. He describes them as famine, danger, persecution, and sword. And you know, I don't see winning the baseball game or passing your test in that list. And because it's not about that. And that's because Paul is talking about persecution. He's talking about suffering for Christ's sake as disciples of Jesus. Now, while we don't want to over-spiritualize Jesus' miracles, as we said, we also don't want to under-spiritualize them either. Because if we do, we're not going to learn the lesson that they have for us. And so with the miracle of Jesus walking on the water, it's absolutely okay for us to notice its details and learn by them. What kind of details? Well, we're going to go there right now. One of those details was already briefly mentioned, and it was that Jesus planned for the disciples to go through the storm. He planned for it. The whole thing wasn't just an afterthought. It was intentionally done by Jesus for a specific purpose, for an important purpose. All right, so that's Miracles Class 101. We got it? Miracles are signs. They're teaching us things. They're pointing us to something. They're not just arbitrary. Now, as we saw last week, we saw Jesus feed the 5,000 families. And then, as we just talked about, we saw the crowds planning to make him king. But that plan wasn't God's plan, was it? No, it wasn't. And so that's why Jesus rejects it. 
He then sends the disciples off to catch a storm and then goes by himself to the mountain to pray. And then when evening come, he's, comes, he's out there alone while his disciples are out there alone at sea, as the text tells us, being beaten by the waves from the storm that they were caught in. So why then did Jesus send them into the storm? Was this punishment for something wrong that they did? Did they do a bad job of distributing the loaves and the fishes? No, the fish, not fishes. The loaves and the fish? Fishes should be plural. I don't agree with that. Did he do a bad job of distributing the, the, lo- the bread and the fish? No, that's not what happened. Were they suffering because they were outside of God's will here? No. Truth be told, they were suffering precisely because they were in God's will. This is an important point that we can't miss. This means that when things go bad and we find ourselves caught up in a storm, what do we tend to think? We tend to start questioning, well, what did I do wrong? Why is God punishing me? Why is he upset with me? But was Jesus punishing the disciples here by sending them into a storm? No, he wasn't. The storm was a part of God's perfect plan for their perfect good. Right now, you can turn on any of the, basically any of the Christian networks, TBN, Daystar, Trinity Broadcasting Network, and what are you likely going to hear on there? Not this. No, you're going to hear about how if we obey God, then we're going to have smooth sailing, not storms. What you're going to hear is basically a country song played backwards where you get all your stuff back. Yeehaw! All your dreams will come true, and you'll live happily ever after, just like Disney promised you would. This is called the prosperity gospel. And it's a gospel that was crafted in the pits of hell. It's not true. It's the same lie that Satan tempted Jesus with, as we said a minute ago, back in Matthew chapter 4, when he offered him the kingdoms of this world without the cross. Bow before me. It's yours. And if the same offer is being made today by prosperity preachers who promise this world's treasure if we will but bow the knee to the false gospel of prosperity. But that is a God who doesn't deliver. It's a God who promises us smooth sailing but only gives us a storm that will shipwreck us forever. But not so with the true and living God. For though that God does send us into storms, They are storms that will never destroy us. And why not? Because this God is the Lord of the storm, who uses storms to shape and mold us in ways that we never could have possibly fathomed. We never could have even dreamt of them, which is precisely what we see him doing here with his disciples. Now, though, if this is going to happen, we are going to have to learn to trust his plan even when the billows roll even when we're in the midst of a deadly and dangerous storm. Do you remember the last storm that the disciples were in? Several chapters back, what happened there? Jesus shows up, comes up from the bottom of the boat, and he says, shh, peace be still. And it's total still. No even waves rocking at that point, just total calm. Which taught the disciples that Jesus is and will powerfully answer our prayers and take us out of storms. Many of you have had that experience as well, where you were in a storm and you prayed for deliverance and God provided it. But with this storm here in our passage today, we find a totally different response, don't we? When Peter walks on the water, is it a calm and tranquil sea? No. It's rough. There's waves. There's wind. 
The storm is still dark and scary. And this teaches us that we are to trust Christ and keep our eyes on him, no matter how the winds howl or the waves break or the darkness surrounds us. We are to keep our eyes on Christ and walk by faith, not by sight. And why? Because Jesus is the Lord of the storm who walks upon its waves. Sometimes Jesus gets rid of the storms, but sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he simply says, I'm going to use this storm to help you. I'm going to use this storm to strengthen you, to actually come to you in a way that you never would have expected, to deepen your trust in me and have your trust depend not upon what I give you, but upon who I am and my presence being with you forever and always. And so for Christ to become our safe shelter, we must not only trust in his plan, but we must trust in his presence, which leads us to our second point. To make Christ our safe shelter, we've got to trust in his plan, but secondly, we have to trust in his presence. Let's look at this next part here in Matthew chapter 14. Let's look at verses 25 through 27. Verse 25, it reads, And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Here Matthew tells us that the disciples had been rowing pretty much all night. In fact, it was into the fourth watch. And Matthew calls this the fourth watch because the way this worked back in Roman time was that they had the night divided into four sections. Uh, So this one was somewhere between, this is the fourth watch, so this was somewhere between uh, roughly 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., which I find pretty disturbing and gross that that that's the last part of the night because evidently they didn't know that there was a fifth watch which continues on from 6 a.m. until 8 a.m., so I don't know why they got that one wrong. but And I don't understand why they're going to bed at 6 p.m. either. That's kind of weird. Whatever. Anyway, so the disciples were rowing then late into the night in this terrible storm. And while I'm sure that that was scary for them, what they saw was even more terrifying than the storm for them. And what they saw was Jesus walking towards them on the water. Now, at first, they weren't sure what they were seeing. Matthew says the disciples thought they saw a phantasma which is where we get our word phantasm, which would basically be a ghost or an apparition. And that absolutely would have been terrifying. Imagine this. They were likely rowing all night for their lives, extremely tired, trying to get through this storm, and then they look up through the mist and the spray to see this ghostly figure approaching them from the sea. That would be terrifying. See, in the Hellenistic world, the sea was understood to be kind of the home of evil spirits. It was seen as a, it kind of represented chaos, danger, unmanageable danger that couldn't be taken shelter from. See, when a tornado comes, you can go into your basement and typically you'll be fine, right? But when you're at sea and the storms come, you go into the basement of your boat and you're not fine. There's no shelter from it. You're, You're caught in the storm. There's nothing you can do other than ride it out. There's nowhere to go. And so here comes someone straight for them, walking on the sea, who is mighty enough to trample upon the raging storm of a sea. So of course, they were terrified. You would have been too. But then, something absolutely remarkable happens in Scripture here. 
Look what he says. He says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. If you notice in your English Bibles, it says what? It is I. That's how Jesus introduces himself. And you've got to be gracious here with the commentators because they're doing the best they can. But this, for us, when we read this, what does it sound like? It sounds like simply saying, hey, don't worry about it. It's me, Jesus. Everything's fine. That's how it comes off to us, right? That's not what's actually happening in this text. Not at all. What he actually says is ego a me, which literally reads, I am. What Jesus is then saying, he's saying, take heart, do not fear, I am. Now, if we're going to make a top ten list of the most radical statements recorded in the Bible, this one hits the list for sure, and it's likely at the top of the list. Why? Because if you know your Old Testament at all, you know that when God met Moses at the burning bush, when he was in the burning bush, and commanded him to go back to Egypt to lead the people out of bondage from the Egyptians, Moses asked him a question. What does he ask him? Who should I tell you sent me? And what does God say? I am has sent you. So what does Moses do then in response to this? He responds in great fear, as we see in that account, of falling flat on his face before a holy God. See, in the Old Testament, whenever God reveals himself, it's always a terrifying thing. It's never this lighthearted, chipper encounter. And why? Because God is holy and humanity is not. We are sinners. And sin separates us from God's holiness. Sin makes God's holiness actually a threat to us. As sinners, we all stand condemned, waiting for the storm of God's wrath to slam into us at full force. It's a terrifying thing that makes the storms of this world, like tornadoes, hurricanes, and tsunamis, look like a small breeze or a fan in your bedroom. That's how great this wrath is. And so whenever sinners encounter even a glimpse of God's glory, it's an absolutely terrifying and dangerous thing. And so sinners, when they encounter it, they're afraid every time. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, what does God say? No. It would kill you. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter, James, and John see Christ's splendor, what happens? It knocks them on their faces as if dead. Back in the Old Testament again, when God comes down on the mountain and surrounds it with his glory, he tells the people, don't even touch the base of the mountain or you'll die. Another example, when they're looking for Jesus, the crowd, the mob comes at night to arrest him. And Jesus says, who are you looking for? What do they say? Jesus of Nazareth. In which he responds with the same two words, ego, me, I am. And what happens? And this is how we know we're not reading into those two words. What happens there? Boom, on their faces. It knocks them to the ground. And they get up and like, oh, well, let's arrest them now. It's pretty dumb. <laughs> But that's what happens there. And why? Because even a glimpse of God's holiness, of his glory, is absolutely a terrifying encounter. And yet, remarkably, what do we find here in this text? Jesus says, take heart, I am, do not fear. That was a never-before thing. Whenever God says, ego in me, I am, it was a terrifying thing. But now, it's not. Now, He's telling his people to take heart in that. And why? What has happened that allows the I am to go from being our dread to becoming our delight? 
The answer comes from a song we sing every single December. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And then in another verse, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time before him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? The I am is with us. That's remarkable. In Christ, the glory of God was veiled, not so that we could go to God, but so that man could come, so God could come down to man. And because of this, Christ can be our safe shelter in whom we can trust. We don't have to be terrified of the I am anymore. Because why? The I am's power, who was once set against us, whose wrath was coming towards us as a storm that absolutely would have obliterated us, is now working powerfully for us, which is a power we must come to trust, which leads us to our final point. To make Christ our safe shelter, we must trust in his plan and his presence, and then third, his power. Look with me at verse 28. It says, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to go Command me to come to you on the water. He said, Peter, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, You are the Son of God. After coming to see the terrifying figure upon the waters, coming to see that it was their master, Peter boldly asked Jesus here if he can step out of the boat and walk on the water to him. And remarkably, Jesus says yes. And as an experienced fisherman, knowing full well the dangers of the sea, Peter steps out by faith into the storm and walks upon the waves towards Jesus. But then what happens? His eyes begin to dart. starts to look around. He sees the wind and the waves crashing about. And what happens? His trust in Jesus' plan, his trust in Jesus' presence, and his trust in Jesus' power begins to wane, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And he starts to sink. And my, oh my, is this a perfect picture of us, is it not? Of course this is. As disciples of Jesus, we're called to trust in his plan, presence, and power. And many times, we do just that. We trust him in the midst of storms. But then, what so often happens? Our eyes begin to dart around. Like Peter, we get our eyes off of Christ. We start looking at the dangers that surround us. And they are serious dangers. What kind of dangers? Maybe it's the ways of a diagnosis your doctor gave you with those word, that word, cancer. Maybe it's the waves of a tumultuous marriage that doesn't seem to be getting better and in fact seems to be getting worse. Maybe it's the waves of your child who hasn't trusted in Christ yet. Or maybe it's the waves of ministry, working with hurting people who seem to only know how to hurt back in their pain. Look, there's a million different things that can cause waves in our lives. Like, you've got... A list. We all do. 
And if we get our eyes off Christ, make no mistake, if we focus on those waves, on that list, we will sink. Yes, not permanently. Our salvation is sealed. Not in totality. Our outcome is guaranteed. But we will absolutely sink in our walk of faith. We will falter. We will stumble. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he compares the Christian race, which we're all in if we're followers of Jesus, if we're born again, he compares that to a race. Now let me ask you, if we get our eyes off Christ, though we are certainly never in danger of dropping out of that race entirely, can we stumble in that race? Of course we can. And sometimes when we stumble, we can stumble hard and really hurt ourselves and hurt those running next to us. Which will not only cause us and them a lot of pain, but it will slow down our progress that we are making in the race of grace. And so the lesson of Peter walking on the water is clear. What are we to do? Keep our eyes on Christ. Don't let our eyes dart around and get focused on the billows that roll. Trust him. Trust his perfect plan. Trust in his perpetual presence and trust in his perfect power. Because if we do, yeah, we're still going to go through storms. You're not getting out of that one. We will share in his glory, Paul says in Romans 8, provided that we share in his suffering. They go hand in hand. But by God's grace and his power, we will walk through them. Maybe you're here today, and yeah, you're a child of God. But boy, are you sinking, and sinking fast. Maybe you've forgotten that his plan of sending you through storms is a perfect plan that's actually for your good. Romans 8, 28. All things, including the storms of life we go through, work together for good for those who love God. doesn't matter how bad that storm might be, how dangerous you might think it is. Maybe you've forgotten that he hasn't promised to spare you from the storms, but he's promised something even better. He's promised to never leave you nor forsake you. Maybe you've forgotten his mighty power, which he shares freely with us, which allows us to do mighty things like Peter did here, who walked upon the waves of the sea in the midst of the storm that he faced. At the end of that storm, another thing we must remember, whether it's a storm of persecution, of famine, of nakedness or sword, or fill in whatever storm you have right now, we need to remember something. What waits for us and what awaits for us? the smiling face of our Savior. And so if that's you this morning, what do you need to do? Same thing Peter did. Lord, save me. Lord, help me. Help me. Pull me back up. Help me continue this walk of faith. And help me to do it by your power. For when you cry out to him, you will find the hand of of Jesus reaching out to take hold of you and pull you back up. And after doing just that for Peter, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And then he gets into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And so for us, the same question holds true. Why do we doubt? Why do we doubt his perfect plan, which includes our going through storms? Why do we doubt his promise to be present with us in whatever storm we go through? And why do we doubt his perfect power to one day, so very soon, return to deliver us from all storms, finally and forever? 
It's because we easily forget that Christ went through the only storm that could ever really harm us. He went through the only storm that was ever truly a danger to us, and he did that so that he could save us from it. The Old Testament, especially the Psalms, speaks a lot of God saving us from the sea, because the sea, as we said, you know, it represents danger, represents chaos, unmanageable chaos. And yet in some of the Psalms, we find what appears to be someone who was not saved when they cried out to God. Someone who sank below the waves and out of sight. In Psalm 69, verses 1 through 3, we read of this person. It says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire, where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the floods sweep over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Who is this? It's Christ. It's a messianic psalm speaking of Christ Jesus, who's the Lord of the storm, who went through a storm for us and was lost so that we might be saved. See, on the cross, the Lord of the storm went through the ultimate storm of God's wrath. He faced its full fury in full. And yet, as the ways of God kept crashing against him, as God's wrath kept slamming into him, when he cried out for help, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Heaven was silent, and he sunk into the depths of the dead. He was denied. Why? That was his mission. That was his plan. It was his purpose. For his denial became our acceptance. And because of this then, and only because of this, he can now be our safe shelter from the only storm that could ever really harm us, which is the wrath of God against all sinners. After Jesus gets into the boat, the wind ceased, and what did the disciples do? They worshipped, which is a proper response when you are before a holy God. It's precisely what you and I ought to do with our lives. How? Well, for starters, by trusting in his plan, which includes his saving plan of salvation. We trust that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was truly enough, that it was sufficient to save us from that storm. And then once we've done that, what do we do? We trust in his plan for our lives, which is a perfect plan, which includes going through All of the infinitely lesser storms, yes, they're hard, yes, they're they're painful, yes, they're scary at times, but going through those lesser storms that he sovereignly sends us into. Secondly, we worship him by living in his presence. What does that mean? Abide in me. We walk with him. We walk with him with our eyes fixed upon him, never forgetting that he is with us and has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And, even we, and we continue trusting in his presence, even when it feels like he's distant. When we're in storms, right, like the disciples, did they feel distant from Christ? He wasn't with them, was he? No, and we go through the same thing. When we are in storms, we often feel as if Christ is nowhere to be found. And that's where we have to remember that he has promised never to forsake us. And so then, we must also go on to trust in his mighty power and not our own. We trust that his power is greater than whatever storm we might face. And no matter how hard the wind blows or its billows roll, we continue on trusting in him 
that he is a safe shelter, that he is a sufficient shelter. And to do so is actually how we worship him. That is a huge element to our worship. And so really what this means then is that the way that we, have, that we know that we've come to make Christ our safe shelter is because our hearts worship him. Have you come to worship him? Are you trusting in the Lord of the storm and walking by faith with him in his power? Or are you sinking because your eyes are darting about upon the things of this world, upon the storms of this world? Storms that, yes, though they seem scary, yes, though they blow hard, they can't hurt you. Our outcome is guaranteed. For one day so very soon, Christ will return, enter the boat with us, and the storms will cease for good, for we will be with him for all of eternity. Have you done that? Have you come to trust in Christ as a safe shelter by trusting in his plan, in his presence, and in his power? Because if you have, you'll be able to sing as the great hymn writer, John Newton, who wrote, His love in time past forbids me to think. He'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. Be gone, unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer let me wrestle, and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Father, we thank you for, for being our refuge from the storm. Father, I pray for the one here today who's sinking. Not sinking to the depths of hell, but just sinking from a lack of trust in you. So Father, I just pray that by your grace and through your perfect power that they would reach out and cry out to you. Knowing and trusting full well that your hand will reach out for them and pull them back up so they can continue the walk of faith. Father, may we as a church be a church that trusts in you, that we trust in your presence, that you're with us. May we live in a way that shows that we truly believe that you are always with us. Not just showing up on Sunday mornings when we gather together to worship you as the body of Christ, but knowing that you are with us throughout our week. And so, Father, we ask that by your power that we might live our lives with our eyes focused on you, trying to do your bidding, to bring the bread of heaven to those who don't have it. And may we know that your mission will be accomplished as you powerfully have planned in your sovereignty for us to reach the shore with you in it. We thank you for this text. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.